0: Visit the Bedfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to bedfredsports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Greetings
1: one and all, and welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Mike Leadis. i spent three decades working in the music industry, running my own PR company, and working as a publicist. For you, too. The Police, Depeche Mode, David Bowie, New Order, Peter Gabriel, Genesis, blah, 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 blah. If you want to know more, feel free to visit my website at www.tonymikeleadis.com. Each week, we'll strive to bring you a cornucopia of musical delights, all based around storytelling. There's archive interviews from back in my radio days with the likes of the Ramones, Steve Wimwood, the Cramps, U2, etc., etc. we also have some great stories from some industry insiders. I must be honest, and say I've been planning this for a while, but I finally got there. This is the first of a four-part series on U2. When I say U2, I'm talking about the earlier days, uh, the really early days when they were nothing, and the people involved that uh, helped them take that first rung up the ladder. That's not to say that we did it all, but we played our part. They played a major role themselves, brilliant management, great work ethic, and it's actually a great story and a great lesson learned from rock and roll. And today... Uh, Two guys called uh, Neil Storey and Dave Robinson Both colleagues of mine some 40 years ago at Island Records Well Dave in 78 was at Stiff and I was working Elvis Costello and his bands there He later went on to become the managing director of Island Records At what was their most successful time then With Bob Marley's legend with Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and of course the unforgettable Fire. Neil was the press officer throughout it all, and the first person that sent me a cassette of you two. So I'll thank him for that. I might not thank him for everything else he rattled on about in between, <laughs> but we won't come to that. On the subject of uh, Neil, we'll be talking to him um, straight away, and um, it's no secret that I've been recorded. I've been meaning to do. Um, kind of digging a little deeper into you 2 because I've never in all my years decided to talk about it not that there's any skullduggery or anything like that but there are some quite incredible stories from a band that you've seen play to under 10 people to what they became as a global brand so to share that with some friends all of whom were there I don't think has been shared before on the airwaves or wherever it's usually people talking to people this is kind of similar but not What does happen is when you're talking to people they tend to uh, use first-name terms about people that you won't know So I'll list the role of of suspects here Neil Storey was the press officer at Island Records um, throughout the 80s and before um, And he did all the publicity with his uh, boss Rob Partridge who was um, an unbelievable legend in the music industry Sadly passed away far too soon and he was greatly missed Hugely respected man Dave Robinson became Island Records Managing Director in 1984 around that period I just told you you've probably heard about the Blarney Stone and the Irish and their storytelling well Dave Robinson just about swallowed the Blarney Stone one of the greatest storytellers ever Annie Rosebery and Bill Stewart were the A&R people that probably saw and discovered the band first time round Chris Blackwell is the head of Island Records and Paul McGuinness is the head of U2 He managed them forever, up until a couple of years ago, when he politely retired. And who can blame him? He did about just everything all along the way. Some great people and some great conversations. So let's get cracking. We've got old Neil.
2: It all actually begins with a guy called Bill Graham. Bill Graham was a writer for the Hot Press. The Hot Press was an incredibly important magazine. It was the only music related magazine in Ireland at that time. Bill, amongst a number of writers, was a good chum of Rob and mine. Rob and I ran the press office at Ireland at that time. He'd bang on and on and on about this little band that he'd found. He'd seen them. uh, He liked them a great deal. He'd hooked them up with Paul McGuinness, who'd become their manager, and he was trying to get Rob and I to go and see them. And what was one thing and another... Something got in the way. There was never an opportunity to go, you know what, I'm just going to take a flight to Dublin. And, you know, it was a bit of an expense in those days to be truthful about it. And if I think either of Rob or I had been really, really, really into it, then uh, we'd have had to get permissions from this person, from that person. It was certainly more than my at that time credit card could could kinda of manage, you know, a weekend away in Dublin to go and see a band that I kind of I'd never heard any of their music and but Bill was somebody that we knew a lot and we trusted a great deal. And Rob had also met in a previous life, he'd met McGuinness, various journalists started kind of talking to us. They'd either been over to to Ireland or they'd seen or they'd heard and so there was a kind of a rumble going on about this little Irish band. And then uh, we knew that they'd been signed to a singles deal to CBS in Ireland. A guy called Chaz Diwali was part and parcel of that. And we'd also heard through the grapevine that Chaz wanted them to sign to... CBS on, a, on certainly a European deal through CBS in London. CBS in London weren't that keen for whatever reasons. The U2-123 um, EP had come out. We had, or I certainly had a copy of that. And things were beginning to kind of bubble. That's the easiest way of explaining it. And then next, year as he was then Bill Stewart, Captain Bill, he uh, had heard and he'd kind of hang out in our office as well. So we'd kind of pull ideas and there were various other bands around that he was getting interested in. He'd recently arrived as our A&R guy. And there was a lady called Annie Rosebury who was also key to the whole thing, and she'd also heard. And so, you know, we, our fingers, I'd like to think, were kind of somewhat on the pulse. Anyway, what with one thing and another, Bill did eventually go and see them, and Annie had seen them, and then they played the Acklam Hall. There was a sort of three-line whip out from Bill Stewart. And I was the one who couldn't go. He went, and he came back. In the following morning, we kind of reconvened, and he went, yeah, they were pretty good. And it was not much more than, yeah, they were really interesting than that at that point. Bill was getting very excited about them. Annie was getting very excited about them. And uh, then it kind of... I think Bill was kind of walking around saying, look, I've signed them. Um, Whether that had actually been signed off properly by Blackwell at that point, I don't know. I think possibly unlikely. And I think it would probably have been Rob who either was called by Chris or he called Chris, who presumably would have been either in NASA at that point or maybe somewhere in Jamaica, saying, look, you know, this band, I've been to see them and I think they're really okay and, you know, we should proceed. So that's basically what happened. Literally as soon as they had signed, we took it in turns in, in terms of who actually went over to start the initial sort of PR ball rolling. Um, Rob did the first photo session, and that was with Sheila Rock, and that took all day, and they were on the beach, and the picture that everybody knows from that session, which has the three of them facing kind of forwards, and then you've got Adam on the far right, and there's a dog in the background, and that was the PR picture we, we chose, and that was literally the last picture the last frame of the last reel that day, everybody was freezing cold. I remember Sheila Rott saying, I was frozen to the marrow shooting that picture or those pictures. And that was the one that was used, and that stood us in really good stead for, God, the better part of two years, I think. Chris Needs uh, was, the, was the first UK, journalists, UK journalist that we took over. I took him over. That was my turn at the airport, we were then uh, we then went and had they took us to lunch in some, in a hotel in Dublin that's all I can remember, it was very good lunch I do know that, (laughs) McGuinness's car wasn't particularly kind of car worthy Um, Bonner didn't stop talking and everything was really cool and then we went to the gingerbread house the gingerbread house was where they rehearsed I think it was the south side of Dublin. Anyway, they were all there. So we met Edge and we met Adam and we met Larry. And he was incredibly pissed off that day, incredibly pissed off, because there must have been some dates coming up. Ireland had given them a certain amount of money, not very much, I don't think, probably cash. And he had had some... uh, for his drum kit he'd had some cases made up and for some mad reason they'd arrived in the colour pink and he was furious about it and he was... Anyway, so what was one thing or another they did two songs in there and there was me and Needsy and McGuinness, yeah he was there and that was it and they played, I swear this is true they played as if They were playing to a full house at Wembley Arena. It was extraordinary. It was just one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in my entire life. They did 11 O'Clock, which, had they recorded that with Hannet at that point? I'm not sure. I don't think they'd have recorded that, or they may have done. Um, And then the other song they did... I don't know, I, I, it could have been Ancat Dove, it could have been, It would have been something off of the, the album, that's for sure, in its infancy. Um, and the power, I, uh, it was just, it was like having a, it was, the place was tiny. It was like sitting in in somebody's living room or standing in somebody's living room and they were the other side of the fireplace. The thing that you need to understand is this was a rehearsal. It was no more, no less than that. It was a rehearsal. There were two of us in the room. And the most remarkable thing was that it, it was as if they were playing to a full house at Wembley Arena, which they didn't do until 1984. Um, on the fire tour, and it was just two of us. McGuinness would have been there, so that's three of us. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. It was the, just the sheer power. The it was el- elating. That's that's the best adjective. I know Chris Needs and I came out of there and just stood in the in the fresh air outside, just shaking our heads. It was excruciatingly loud, but then you know Edge playing edge type guitar at that kind of volume that he he plays at in a very confined space is loud and they went for it they really really went for it it was extraordinary, just fantastic just fantastic and then my first gig was the Open Anchor, was it? wherever it was, it was seven people in the audience and um, again it was the same kind of thing that they played as if they were, they were playing to 10,000. Yeah. It was extraordinary. And then in the middle of the show, because don't forget, this is long before, you know, Edge has got 28 guitars being tuned for the next song by Roadie X or Y or Z. So, you know, a string gets broken, then he sits on his his amplifier and his, you know, thingy, his Vox AC30, Restrings the guitar. Everybody gathers round and we sit and chat. To you know, Bono, Bono kind of holds court. That was what those early gigs were like. Don't don't anybody misunderstand. But you, all you knew was you were seeing something. And there's no point in saying, oh yeah, I knew that was the next best thing. I knew they were going to be bigger than Led Zeppelin because that's total utter bollocks.
1: I always find it amazing. You know the stories, but you uh, hear them again and it's kind of like you've never heard him before. That was Neil Storey, who was the press officer at Island Records for a good few years. He worked under um, a really good guy called Rob Partridge. I mentioned that at the beginning of the programme, who was the head of press. They wanted to form their own PR company and stuff, and Neil's still actively involved um, in his own company, Hidden Masters, which release amazing uh, back catalogue stuff and a lot of stuff with Island Records. As I mentioned before, it was Neil Storey that sent me the cassette and told me to go and see this band On the 31st of May, 1980 You've been listening to Moments That Rock With me, Tony Michael, It is your host We'll take a short break and hear from our sponsors And we'll be back to hear Dave Robinson's involvement And his memories of YouTube. two
3: Hello Pantheon Podcast listeners Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds
1: You're listening to Moments That Rock, and we're back with Dave Robinson's story of YouTube.
4: Paul McGuinness actually worked with my father. Paul McGuinness was an assistant director at Ardmore Studios, and people were coming in to make movies in Ireland, you know, with, with very good tax breaks and, and other incentives that the Irish government were using to bring in. Movies to sound uh, scru- sound stages uh, just outside Dublin Ardmore. My father was the resident sign writer at Ardmore, so he did all the props and all the writing, so all the kind of all that area of stuff that movies would use, where they would need uh, names over shops or pubs or whatever. Whatever the thing, my father did all that kind of work. That was his uh, expertise, and so he was aware of Paul McGinnis. Uh, I think they kind of got on, but I don't know. My father was quite of a an <laughs> quite an aggressive individual, and I'm sure I'm sure Paul was pushy in his own sphere of endeavour. Anyway, they knew each other, and so uh, I had I met Paul along the way, who told me that he knew my dad. So, um, initially, I didn't meet Bono until actually I went to Ireland. Um, I met Paul on several occasions. He came to me uh, initially asking me would I release some U2 singles because he wasn't getting anywhere with getting a major record deal in, um, in England. He wasn't getting... He'd had every major record company come to Ireland, and they hadn't really, in looking at the band, they hadn't seen what he saw, supposedly, and they hadn't signed a deal. They hadn't been impressed. Although, you know, the U2 audience were totally exhausted from playing the same gig over and over and over again to every record company when they came to town in the same venue. So it's really the same people you know, they were totally stage managed at this point by Paul, to the point that every single link was already worked out. So, um, <laughs> you know, it still hadn't made an impression on the record company. So he came to London to meet me at Stiff and said, would I help him by putting out uh, a couple of his singles independently? And quite honestly, I listened to the material, and I was not very impressed I have to say uh early days for uh you two uh, bono's voice wasn't wasn't of the same character that it grew into uh he was and they were very kind of mm, naff punk <laughs> they were they were a half and half punk band in between punk and trying to be commercial and trying to hit some kind of chord in England that wasn't there. They they didn't have an organic kind of style. They had an attempt to try and find a commercial style or a a hook generally that might connect to the major record companies. So I I said to Paul that, quite honestly, we're a small record company at the time. We didn't have the wherewithal to release independent records that I could actually uh, promote properly for him and suggested that Chris Blackwell was looking for uh, stuff and I made an appointment with Chris Blackwell at Ireland so Paul could go over there and meet him. Anyway he went off to Ireland and the, and the story goes, and I wasn't there obviously, that Blackwell kind of avoided him, swerved around him a bit or had something else to do. You know what Chris Blackwell was like. He he would say yes, but, you know, he may very well have been off doing something else. And uh, Rob Partridge and Nick Stewart listened to the material. And uh, I'm amazed to say that, obviously, one of them, or both of them, were a better A&O man than me, perhaps. Uh, and, and Nick Stewart, I know, uh, backed up by Rob, uh, impressed upon Chris Blackwell, that this is a band that maybe should be uh, signed. Chris Blackwell decided to do a basic deal that Ireland did at the time, which was not really a big deal. It was a um, a basic, very basic deal, which involved some tour support. So his always his reaction was to have bands go on the road and and if they worked on the road, then they could grow to bigger things. But if they didn't, he could drop them without having to really be involved. And that was the deal he did for you too. What he what he equally he did, which was fairly amazing, is he introduced them to a gentleman in America called Frank Barcelona, and Frank Barcelona was the Mr. Hip agent in New York. He was he had all the kind of not heavy metal rock but he had the mid the middle rock Bruce Springsteen, thing for example uh so he had this middle ground of kind of pop rock i don't know what the actual title graham parker sat in that area and he um he he then uh, the band were an ideal size four four men and and a a tour manager and manager, Paul McGuinness, essentially toured America in a station wagon with a trailer with their gear in the back, uh, out the back. And they went around the entire bit of America. Frank Barcelona loved the Irishness of U2. And I'm sure he liked... I, I never spoke to him on the subject, but I'm sure he liked Bono. He certainly liked Paul. And uh, he he put them on. Wherever one of his bigger bands didn't have a support he uh, put them on as support. So they managed to support some of the biggest up-and-coming bands in America. Equally, I am told by a couple of other roadie guys that I've spoken to, American roadies, that Bono would insist that the band watched the headliner every single night and he saw things they did that he fed to his musicians. So he trained his band in, uh, in all the tricks and uh, stagecraft that he was watching from bigger bands. And so gradually you two um, got, uh, a lot of, uh, got a lot of uh, knowledge of how it worked. His voice, because he was gigging a lot every night, and because he was trying so hard to get encores and things, that he was over singing, his voice blew out on several occasions. And in actual fact, that's what developed his basic um, sound. Over the the pipsqueak kind of early U2 um, trebly punky kind of sound became deeper and more interesting. On top of that, on top of that, Bono found that Bono is one of the clumsiest people in the history of the universe. But he turned it to his advantage. He had a pair of brown boots that he wore for gigs every night. And one night, in his frustration to try and get the crowd to come with them, because they were obviously up for the headliner, right? Supporting some of those bands is difficult because people would throw things. He climbed the PA stack. Most of the clubs in those days had a PA of their own, not like in England where you had to bring your own PA. They had one built in and they had a sound man. So Bono climbed the PA stack very precariously, um, will he or won't he fall and break his neck? Kind of situation in his brown boots, and got to the top and sang his last number from the top of the stack. So he got an encore, and from then on he climbed every PA stack across America. And the fact that he's still here in one piece is, is, is you know, a, a magical, a magical situation. But he found climbing the V8 that got him an encore, and he found that uh, cynically, I mean musically you two are an acquired taste, and an often awful lot of people have that acquired taste, but but stagecraft-wise, he learned how to do it. He learned that it was a system, a knack, a method, um, repeated. It's what things that worked, he kept in, things that didn't work, he dropped. So. He was very, he was very uh, clever, he was very cunning, he saw exactly which bits worked and which he kept and that's why at the end of the day when his voice became a really powerful unit and his songwriting really improved, that's the reason uh, somewhat as to why you 2 conquered the world.
1: Love listening to those guys so much. Great storytellers and some really um, wonderful stuff from the early days of U2. Fond smiles from this ear host. You've been listening to Moments That Rock, the first episode in a four-episode series on U2, talking to people that were there in the really, really early days, right up to before they got a record deal and in those really early stages where they were toured and toured and toured and played really every little place that they could. Um, the story about um, Barcelona, Frank Barcelona's involvement, and um, the way they conquered America by real hard work. I think they call called Paying Your Dues. I don't know who does it nowadays, and I don't even know where bands are, but we won't quite go there. By the way, I forgot to mention that uh, a lot of this interview stuff and archive stuff that I root out for moments that rock is really old. It was on cassette some 35, 40 years ago, and copying from cassette to MP3 um, you don't always get the quality unless you've got tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment to ramp it up and make it sound beautiful. And frankly, I don't. Stay tuned for next week. You'll hear Mark Radcliffe telling us, well, both of us telling us a story of the first time they went to, that we went to see you two at Manchester Polytechnic on a rainy night in Manchester on the 31st of May, 1980. And that'll be followed by an interview that very few people will have heard with Mark and Bono and The Edge talking about uh, just up before the war album and a little young Irish kid who's pretty angry. You've been listening to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts and there's plenty of good stuff on there. Come back next week for more U2. Insider Insights is a regular weekly feature in Moments That Rock. It's where we talk to behind-the-scenes people in the music industry and let them
0: share their stories. More next week. Visit the Bedfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to betfredsports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.
2: Have you ever lifted a piece of furniture and found the carpet underneath looks brand new while the rest of it looks, well, not brand new? That's when you realize you need new carpeting. At the Home Depot, we have a wide selection of all the top brands. Best of all, we'll install it for you. And even better than best of all, we install it free. So all you need to do is choose from our hundreds of styles and colors. Start your installation today at the Home Depot. How doers get more done? Minimum purchase of four ninety nine. Exclusions apply. U.S. only. See store for details.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.